Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Joyful to sing together about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and wonderful to hear from Caleb how we had an opportunity to preach the power of Christ's resurrection to the children at Camp Ripley and great to be able to pray for the team leaving for Honduras. That team was bigger than I thought it was. We need to look into like, they could charter a small plane and they wouldn't have to do it commercially. It was a lot of them up here. But it will be a joy to pray for them and to hear how God's going to use them as they proclaim the power of Christ's resurrection from the grave. We're going to look together today at the very end of the book of Isaiah. We've reached the second half of Isaiah chapter 66. And Lord willing, this will conclude our encouraging and hope-filled study, Beholding God in the book of Isaiah. When we open God's word, we ask God to open our hearts and so... I'm going to say a little prayer. This prayer that I've learned over the years is I just use the word I and me, but I ask you to join me in prayer and put yourself, put yourself in this prayer. Let's bow together. This my prayer and this alone, Savior, let your will be done. From my heart, the idol tear, you shall have no rival there. Only you upon the throne, Savior, let your will be done. You my hope, my joy alone, Savior, let your will be done in me. Lord Jesus, I ask, amen. Amen. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 66. We did the first half of it last week and we'll pick it up in verse 15 this week. Isaiah 66 and verse 15. Not a verse to mess around with, Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. That verse, Isaiah 66, verse 15, is an answer to a prayer request. When God descends in the flame of the fire of his wrath, he's actually answering the request of his people. If you flip back to Isaiah 63, verse 15, this is the prayer request. Isaiah 63, verse 15. You ever pray like this? Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirrings of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. When God's people are seeing godlessness and wickedness seem to rule and reign in the kingdoms of the earth, we say, God, where's your zeal? Where's your might? You are the king. You are the king of kings. Will you come down and show us that? Look at Isaiah 64, verse 1. This is the prayer request to which Isaiah 66 is the answer. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, 
that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. We see that key word fire twice in that prayer request in Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2. And then in Isaiah 66, verse 15, is the prophecy of God answering that prayer. When he says, behold, the Lord will come in fire. When the Lord comes in fire, this will be a fire of wrathful judgment against his enemies, but it will be a fire of galvanizing protection and even vindication for his people, for his servants, for his friends. Which side of the fire you're on or what the fire accomplishes in your life is all dependent upon if you're in Christ or out of Christ. We began in verse 15, but if you look at verse 14 of Isaiah 66, you shall see your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. There you have the duality or the bifurcation. Some are his servants. The fire for them is galvanizing for their salvation, but some are his enemies, and the fire for them is the indignation of his wrath. Isaiah 66, the second half, beginning in verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and litters and mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From my new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh." A few comments of explanation on this sobering passage about God's fiery judgment. 
talks about all the nations. In uh, verse 19, Tarshish, Pul, Lud, Tubal, Javan. We don't know exactly. Some We have to piece together the best we can from archaeology, but this may be parts of northern Africa, modern Turkey, even modern Spain. And he's talking about his plan, and God's plan for the world is shown there in verse 18. And they shall come and shall see my glory. God's plan for the world is that the whole world will see his glory. God's plan for the world is that the whole world will see his glory. And then he gets specific about God's means for carrying out that plan. God will respond to the evil in the world. God will show his glory in fiery judgment against his enemies, in the fire of salvation for his servants, for his friends, for his people. But everyone will see his glory. The saved will see his glory in the grace of their salvation. The lost will tremble and bow before the glory of the Lord in the fire of his judgment. The verse that was on the screen uh, while we were singing one of the songs when the instruments were playing was Philippians 2, which summarizes God's plan for the world, which is that the whole world will see the glory of Christ and the word every is in there twice. Every knee, every tongue, some, as it were involuntarily in the humiliation of judgment and wrath some in the glory of unmerited, merciful salvation. This is God's plan for the world, and he uses this unique word in verse 19, I will set a sign among them of what I'm doing. What is that sign, and when is it fulfilled? My best answer is that 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 verse has been fulfilled multiple times already, and there will come a final time when it is finally fulfilled. That sign may have been the star, the birth of Jesus. Certainly the sign was the cross and the empty tomb. I think the sign was also Pentecost. As soon as Christ ascended, the spirit was sent and the church was born. That sign will be the regathering of the Jews, as the book of Revelation in Thessalonians talks about in the end. The regathering of Israel and the millennial reign of Jesus. In verse 21, maybe even part of the sign, he says that he'll take some of his people and make them priests and Levites. This is another interesting verse. Some interpret this just as symbolic or spiritualized language. A more literal interpretation takes Ezekiel 44 through 46, which talks about the reinstitution of the temple in the millennial reign of Jesus. And that when Jesus comes back, there'll be a temple and Levitical services, not in the sense of atoning for sin, that happened once for all in Christ, but like we have communion today as as a remembrance, as a reenacted memorial of what our Lord and Savior has done. But don't you think also that when it says that God's going to make his people into priests, there's a way that that's fulfilled today, right now. Even though uh, you saw a demonstration of it in, in the team that's going to Honduras. 
I don't know if everybody who did all the qualifications for going to Honduras recognized, but everybody, every one of them up there, every woman and every man is a priest. We're sending a group of priests to Honduras. I'm referring to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. It says this to the church, 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Don't you see, church, what that's saying? To, to not be a part of God's people, to be a Gentile or to be lost, and then to be brought in as one of God's people would be a high privilege. But to, exp to express the reality of the gospel, he goes beyond just you were a Gentile and an outcast and you were brought into the Israelites, but he brings you all the way into this chosen tribe, this chosen clan of the priests. And he says, the reason I did that, you, you catch that in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, he says, because once you weren't God's person, but now you are. Once you were outside, but now you're on the inside, and so now your job is you've been chosen to proclaim to everyone who's on the outside how through Jesus Christ they too can be brought in. Which is to say, I appreciated everything Caleb said about praying for the Honduras team, and you should. But I would just add one thing. Don't pray for them to do a great job sharing the gospel in Honduras without praying for yourself to do a great job sharing the gospel in Racine, Kenosha, Union Grove, Oak Creek, Quick Trip, <laughs> Festival Foods, wherever you enter into. This, we, we once were not God's people. And now by sheer mercy and love, we are. And we get to share that good news with the people around us. That's our calling. And it's a wonderful calling. And then as he gets to the close of the chapter, he says the new heavens and the new earth. And then he talks about your offspring. You see that in verse 22? Your offspring and your name will remain. We hear, we hear there an echo of God's first promise, not to Adam and Eve, but to the first calling of the first tribe from Abram when he renamed him Abraham. And he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You'll have a name, you'll have a land, you'll have a seed. And significantly, he says there in Genesis 12 and repeats it in 17, all those who bless you will be blessed and all those who curse you will be cursed. And here we have the fire of God coming down as a blessing to all those who are his true seed, his saved ones, and as a curse or as a judgment or as the fury of wrath against all those who have cursed God's people and refused to repent of their sin. Comes all back around in that Abrahamic covenant. And then the final note is not one of uh, sort of, I guess we would say in English terms, happy triumph. But the final note, verse 24, is still a note of triumph, but it's a triumph of judgment. Dead bodies. And one significant thing about verse 24 uh, is that this image of hell, for their worm shall not die, 
and their fire shall not be quenched. When Jesus, when Jesus of Nazareth spoke about hell in Mark chapter 9, this is the image that he used. Which, to speak about it reverently, we, we try to train our kids to have the right imagination about what's beautiful and what's wicked, about the future. And if we can say so reverently, the somewhere in his boyhood and in his development, the imagination of Jesus of Nazareth about what hell would be like was colored and filled in by Isaiah. And then when he spoke as a man of God to teach others what hell was like, it was this very referent and this image that he used to speak about it in Mark chapter nine. A precious truth that when we hide the word of God in our heart, it forms our mind and it enables us to teach clearly and fruitfully. This final verse about the dead bodies doesn't mean that God's plan of salvation failed. It means that, as we've been saying, that God is glorifying himself before every person. The saved, by their very salvation, those who refused salvation and who dishonored the servant of the Lord by their judgment. But all will behold the glory of God. For some, it will be terrifying and fearful. For others, it'll be the home that we've always known we belonged in, but we've never yet seen. Isaiah ends with the stakes as, as high as they can you know, possibly be. And with those few comments about the end of the text, I wanna answer one uh, common objection and then give a couple of, of key concluding truths from the book of Isaiah. One common objection is this whole area of, of, uh, of hell and judgment. I think I mentioned that the, the next verse-by-verse -verse series that we've chosen to do from the pulpit will be 1 Peter. But before we get to 1 Peter, we're going to do a short topical series answering the three or four or five or six or seven most common questions that I've been asked about life and the Bible and culture and everything like that in, in the last couple of years. And one of the most common objections is people object to the doctrine of hell like it's not right or it's not fair. The objection goes something like, will God, will God, send, will God send nice, sweet people to hell just because they didn't believe in Jesus? That objection seems weighty and unanswerable if we're floating in the flow of contemporary feelings about identity and human nature, I suppose. But it's very answerable. The problem with that objection is I, it doesn't understand salvation at all. And that objection in itself, if I could put it this way, is bad news rather than gospel good news. Because to say, why won't God let kind, good people into heaven is to say, you earn your way into heaven by being friendly and kind and sweet and good. And if the message is that you earn your way into heaven by being friendly and sweet and kind and good, that is the bad news of human religion. There's no gospel in it. The message of the gospel 
is precisely that God ordained a way to get bad, stinking losers into heaven. Losers like me and like you. This is the good news of the gospel. To claim that hell isn't right because God has to accept anybody who's kind and nice, well, that's to claim that anybody and everybody can be saved by their own moral attainments, which is not good news. Because none of us are nice all the time. None of us are sweet and kind all the time. The gospel says that bad people who have failed to be nice and sweet all the time can be saved. How? Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. The sweetest, nicest, kindest person is still under there that sometimes she isn't sweet and kind and she's gone astray like a sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So don't be, don't, don't be uh, rocked back on your back foot, so to speak, by an objection to hell like that. The other thing to think about you know, we talked about Jesus of Nazareth taking this imagination of the worm not dying out in, into, his, into, his, into his mind and his heart when he was... So just think about it like this. To object about hell to Jesus, I think, if I could dare to say so, I think you'd get a pretty good answer to your objection from Jesus if you had a chance to talk to Jesus. Because I think that Jesus could say, friend, I know more about hell than you ever will. Even if you're going there, Jesus would say, friend, even if you end up there, I know more about hell than you ever will. For Jesus, in his perfect, pristine, unfallen human nature, bore the wrath of God at Golgotha. He endured it on the cross. Isaiah 53 again, verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. Yet it was the will of God to crush him and put him to grief. His soul was made a guilt offering for sin. The fire, the fire of the fury of God's judgment fell upon Jesus. If you take your objection about hell to Jesus, he knows what he's talking about when he gives you a response. And the love of God is demonstrated in this. Not that some sins are punished and some are not. The love of God in the gospel is demonstrated in this. All sin is judged in the fire of hell. Either it's judged there because I hold on to it unrepentantly and so I take it there with me or it has already been judged because my substitute took my place. Isaiah answers these objections or the, the, the Bible, the whole story of the Bible answers these objections but Isaiah gives us a vibrant picture of hell that is meant to lodge in our imagination and is not meant to be avoided. So if we answer one objection, let me give you a couple of concluding truths from the book of Isaiah. First one is that the glory of God, the glory of God gives us perspective 
about suffering and endurance. The glory of God gives us perspective about suffering and endurance. Have you ever heard a Christian teacher say that, I think it's true, if, if you are unconverted and unrepentant and you're headed to hell, then this life right now is the absolute best it's ever gonna get for you. Other side, if you are converted and Christian, no matter what's happening in your life, what you are going through right now in this life is the worst it's ever gonna be for you because when you get home, every tear will be wiped away. It gives us perspective. It gives us perspective about suffering. And one of the things that we love about the book of Isaiah is it's not two-dimensional. It's not a, a sort of theoretical, philosophical answer about suffering. It's fully three-dimensional. You can smell it, taste it, feel it in all of its beautiful prophetic and poetic imagery. It gives us perspective about suffering and endurance. So a, a, a pastoral word about suffering in this world of ours where some people suffer unjustly. And that is this, though I will preach often and many times about enduring suffering, it, it needs to be said that there is some suffering that you shouldn't endure silently. If you're being mistreated, if you're being harmed, if you're being abused, God has ordained authorities to protect you from that kind of suffering. And that's God's good design. Not that you would endure that suffering, but that you would take his means of escape. That's why God has prioritized these things and why he speaks so often in his word about protecting the oppressed and rescuing those who are being harmed. God provides that. On the other hand, or in different situations, there's some suffering that you can't get out of for whatever reason. And some suffering that we do and that we are called to endure. And Isaiah gives us perspective to endure that. If you turn back with me to Isaiah 40, this, this robust chapter about God's glory and God's greatness, that he holds everything in his hands, the most, the most marvelously humane thing about Isaiah 40 is that the, this whole picture of the glory of God is a, a remedy to the, the, way we, the way we get upside down when we suffer and we don't endure it well. Because if you look at verse 27, verse 27 of Isaiah 40, all this theology about the glory of God is about this. See verse 27? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. You see, sometimes when we suffer and we can't get out of it, we, we, we think that God has somehow forgotten us or abandoned us or isn't watching us. And it says here, the creator of the ends of the earth, he's not faint, he doesn't grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He's doing something that you can't search out. And when you faint, verse 29, he'll give you power. And when you have no might, verse 29, he will increase your strength. 
If you wait on the Lord, verse 31, wait on the Lord, he'll renew your strength and you'll mount up with wings like eagles and you'll run and not be weary and you'll walk and not faint. The glory of God gives us perspective about suffering. If you turn back from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 26, here's perspective when things, when the bottom falls out. Isaiah 26, verse one, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation, Isaiah 26, as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Verse three, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Here's perspective. When everything is shifting and shaking in your suffering, this, this, this has been predicted. This verse doesn't say that this world is a stable rock and all of your circumstances will be stable. No, everything in this world shifts and shakes, but we have a God who is the everlasting rock. The glory of God gives us perspective to endure in suffering. The glory, the, the glory of God gives us perspective that we as his church are not gonna be like all the lemmings in the world who just freak out about the latest thing and then freak out about the latest thing and then freak out about the latest, latest, latest thing. What's happening today and all of this shaking, is, it, we expect that. That's the way this world is. But we have the Lord God who is an everlasting rock. We have this density to us this density to our character that comes from a proper theology of knowing who God is. And we have perspective about the troubles of this life that comes from temporal bandwidth, from temporal bandwidth. In other words, we don't think that reality is everything that's been on the news cycle for the last 24 hours or the last 24 years. We have Isaiah in our news cycle. We have Babylon in our news. We have this temporal bandwidth that we see, we see the glory of God. Don't get all wrapped up about the latest this or that. See the glory of God and gain perspective through life and through suffering. The glory of God gives us perspective to endure, gives us perspective not to freak out. And one of the other things that Isaiah does, maybe a second truth about the glory of God in Isaiah is the glory of God in Isaiah gives us a vision, gives us a vision that this world is passing away and the world to come will endure forever. The glory of God in Isaiah gives us a vision that this world is passing away and that the world to come will endure forever. The new heavens and the new earth is coming. Isaiah 66 verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. This world is passing away, but the new heavens and the new earth will endure one reason, one reason that you need, 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 need to be in church and not forsake being here one day out of seven is because six days out of seven, you live in a world that's passing away that is always whispering in your inner ear, 
it's going to last forever. This is reality. This is reality. This is going to last forever. And one day out of seven, we get to gather here for a couple of hours to, to, to understand that the world is passing away and the world to come is reality. We get one shot at that. That's why we need to be here. It's one of the reasons why studying 1 John in our ABFs has been so valuable. One of, one of the themes in 1 John is this theme of what passes away and what endures. Such an important theme for us to remember. I often tell myself, hopefully you don't think that this makes me pessimistic or weird. I'm, I admit I'm weird, but I'm not pessimistic. But I often, I often tell myself, Spence, everything that you're looking at is soon going to be silvery, gray, weightless ashes. Everything, everything. I got a ways to go in fearing God and not fearing man. But I'd say on the whole, my life's not dominated by the fear of man. The only reason that's true is because Isaiah has convinced me that every person is a grasshopper. <laughs> and only God is the king whom I should fear. All the people you're afraid of, all the people you let control you, they're, they're, they're not gonna last. They're not gonna last. Isaiah reminds us of this in Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. 51, 12, God says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. Isaiah gives us the glory of God as a vision that this world and the people of this world who seem so powerful, their power will not endure, but the kingdom which is coming will last forever. And so this gives us a perspective. I talked a minute ago about being pessimistic. Maybe it's true that I could be guilty of being pessimistic about the next, oh, what, 40 or 400 years or so? but I'm super optimistic about the next bazillion years that are after that. It gives you perspective. It gives you perspective. It's, uh, it, it's like, you know, that the, the through, through what the suffering servant did on that cross, the devil's, the, the serpent's head was crushed. It's, it's not yet what it shall be, but it's already a reality. It's just like taking out the trash, Right? Has anybody else, like this summer, we have more flies getting into our house than like ever before. I don't know what the deal is with that. Not mosquitoes or bees, just those, those flies. And so we've sort of experimented with different stuff to do with the trash, right? We all have this, we, every, every household has a process. First, the trash goes under the sink. And then when that's filled up or when it gets stinky, you, you tell the kids or you end up doing it yourself, you tie it off. And then you take it from under the sink to wherever position B is, like your garage or your backyard or 
you illegally dispose of it or whatever you do, like you put it wherever it's supposed, your, your, your B position, and then on the day that the trash truck comes, you put it in the thing, roll it out, and it goes all the way out. You know, from Isaiah, from Golgotha, from the empty tomb, Satan, I don't know if he's under the sink or if he's in the garage or if he's already in the dump, but he's already in the bag. That's the point. He's already in the bag and the twist tie's already there. Like the, our Lord Jesus Christ will have and has the prize for which he died. He rose again to marry his church, to be with us, to protect us. There's no way that Satan will ultimately defeat any of you if you are in Christ. So take courage from that. Take courage from that. Let the glory of God in Isaiah give you a vision of endurance, of courage, of perseverance through suffering, of perspective on the shallowness and shortness of this life and the gravity and eternity of the life to come. Let Isaiah give you that personal density of, un, of theology proper and that temporal bandwidth of being able to see God's provision over the years. And the church needs to remember the book of Isaiah because a confused world desperately needs a clarified church. And a doubting world desperately needs a believing church. And a fearful world desperately needs a fearless church that has a perspective of God's vision and God's glory. We won't be swept away by this or that or the other thing because we know that in the Lord our God, we have an everlasting rock to hold us steady. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, as we receive your word, what we forget will cause us to remember. And Lord, as we receive your word, what we doubt will grant us by your Holy Spirit a conviction of belief. And living God, as we receive your word, what we hesitate to obey, break that down and help us to walk in the good way that you have called us to walk. As we receive your glory in the book of Isaiah, do in us what only you can do by the fiery reality of your salvation. Forge within us a faith that endures and a hope and a joy that beholds you by faith now and by sight, soon and very soon. May we behold you and have that perspective of who you are, living God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.